0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy's 20-minute playbook series, where each week we sit down with an elite performer, from iconic founders to world-renowned investors and best-selling authors, to dive into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies that got them to the top of their field, all in less than 20 minutes. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today I sit down with Alex Rubelkava, founder and managing partner of Stage Venture Partners. Stage VP invests hyper early, typically pre-seed and seed into deep technology companies across four core verticals, which include space technology, industrial applications, healthcare and life sciences, and e-commerce tooling. What fascinated me about Alex and Stage Venture Partners is the incredibly unique approach of investing early into very difficult technological problems with a proven ability to help shepherd these companies from seed to Series A and beyond. In this episode, we cover Alex's investing superpower, how he manages his time, why he loves the book The Gorilla Game, the advice he gives founders again and again and again, and so much more. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 101. You can find Alex Rubelkava on Twitter at Alex Rubelkava. That's Alex R-U-B-A-L-C-A-V-A. And you can find Stage Venture Partners online at stagevp.com. With that, let's dive into Alex Rubelkava's Playbook. Alex Rubelkava, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy's 20 Minute Playbook.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Glad to be here.
0: So in this episode, this kind of format typically is a little bit faster paced, so I'm going to try to ask you as many questions that I think will get interesting answers from you in the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Let's go ahead and get started. Let's do it. in the last episode, you know, we dove in and spent a lot of time talking about your venture firm, Stage VP, and, and a lot about your investing process, your investing approach. One of the questions I want to ask you in this interview is how you think about your superpowers as it pertains to investing. What do you think that you are, you know, kind of over index on and how does that show up in your investment process?
1: I would say that a lot of the, what I am particularly good at is investing in areas where there's not a lot of technology that has been applied, where there's not a lot of understanding of markets and where um, innovation has been a little slower to arrive. A lot of the things that I invest in, you know, there is no legacy software product that is being displaced or disrupted. We are literally competing with, you know, clipboards or Excel. Completely manual processes. In fact, that is the incumbent solution in the vast majority of things that I invest in. And when you do that, like, there's no TAM to analyze, there's no market share to think about. Like, there's no 40 page PDF to download from Gartner to, you know, figure out who's in the magic quadrant and stuff like that. Like, it's the Wild West compared to a lot of other markets in software.
0: No, that makes sense. Is there a piece of advice that you find yourself giving to founders again and again and again? Or maybe another way of framing that, kind of saying that would be, is there kind of the same advice that you give to all the founders you invest in?
1: There's a few things. Number one, a lot of founders are sensitive to dilution on oversubscribing seed rounds. And I have generally advised founders that nobody regrets taking a few extra dollars while they still have not yet achieved product market fit. Achieving product market fit is messy and time consuming and unpredictable and having a little bit more runway to make a mistake or two along the way before you finally figure it out is always valuable. So I think that's one piece of advice that I always give. And then a frequent piece of advice I always give is if somebody is picking up the phone to give me a call to ask about whether they should let go of a person who is not performing They already know the answer to the question and they're just, you know, calling me for ratification of what they know needs to be done.
0: Yeah. Forget the quote on there. I think it's if, gosh, I'm going to totally blank on it. It's if you're questioning it, you know, it's already, you've already kind of decided it in your mind. I'm totally butchering this, (laughs) but this is a common aphorism. I know like Frank Slootman, you know, talks about Snowflake. Yeah.
1: And we are very fortunate to be in the best job market in the history of all time at the moment. And so anyone who is not a good fit at a startup and unfortunately is going to get let go, they're going to land on their feet. This is a good time to let somebody go pursue some other opportunity that might be a better fit for them where they could really excel. And that, that is not always the case. We don't live in times like now all that often, but I think that should give founders who are questioning what they should do a little bit more encouragement to make the hard choices because people are going to be okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good reminder. We talked about in the last episode that you've gone to 18 plus uh, Berkshire Hathaway annual conferences. One of the questions I want to ask, you know, I feel like anyone who's a student of Charlie and Warren and Berkshire has an anecdote or a story or a data point or a quote, just something that they really hold on to. Uh, what is yours? Is there anything that you know kind of resurfaces in your head that that they've said or that shows up in kind of how Berkshire operates?
1: Berkshire is so different from a venture back company that uh, there's not a huge amount that's common to them, and you know what I do on a day to day basis. I would say that um probably the one thing that is in common is the way that they communicate. I try to write you know very detailed letters that are um, modeled on what Berkshire Hathaway does to my investors. I try to sort of manage expectations in a way that is similar to the way that Berkshire does. I'm not sure I get it you know, right every time, but I, I sure try. And Buffett and, and Berkshire have defined a way of communicating with investors that ends up attracting the right kind of investors, the kinds of uh, investors that they want, and frankly, repelling investors that they don't want. And I think a lot of CEOs and founders of companies don't realize that they have the power to do that.
0: Yeah, that's well said. I know as well too that you're a voracious reader. Do you have a favorite book or a book that's maybe you know most memorable that you've read around investing business broadly?
1: Oh, investing in business. Uh, I'm trying to think about what would be a good uh, book. You know, a book that has a you know, somewhat mixed reputation, but I think is better than people think it is, is The Gorilla Game. The Gorilla Game was published 24, 25 years ago. In the height of dot-com mania, it was a book about how to invest in emerging growth technology businesses. Because the dot-com crash happened shortly after the book was published, it fell out of favor. But the risk management approach that is advocated in the book about how to invest in emerging growth, how to identify winners, and using a basket-based approach for all the vendors and then consolidating into your winners as you determine who the platform leader will end up being, it is a pretty robust risk management approach. You you have to make sure that you're not paying a crazy valuation as well, and the book doesn't talk too much about that topic. But as a risk management approach, it has a lot to recommend it. And in particular, one of the reasons why I find that book interesting is that the value investing world of Berkshire and Buffett and all of his acolytes has a lot of literature about risk management, about portfolio management, and the frameworks that are advocated are self-reinforcing and cohesive in a way that makes them very appealing to a lot of people. Very few people have talked about what risk management looks like for growth investing. And I think that there needs to be more written about that topic. And it's something I spend a lot of my time thinking about.
0: Well, if you ever publish something, I would love to (laughs) share it with listeners. And I mean, that book sounds incredible. I have not heard of or come across the guerrilla game. So I'll make sure we link to that in the show notes for anyone that's listening as well, too. I want to ask you a question around kind of time allocation and how you manage your time. So obviously as an investor, you know you find yourself pulled in a lot of directions. <laughs> you do, one, I think deal with a lot of volatility just in terms of daily workload, what's happening at all the different companies you're invested in. And so it's somewhat unique, at least in my experience. How do you think about managing your time and how do you think about allocating your time to different buckets or focuses?
1: I spend 50% of my time looking to raise capital from LPs. I spend 50% of my time looking to make new investments and I spend 50% of my time helping portfolio companies and, uh, nope, it sure doesn't add up.
0: <laughs> and that's probably how it feels. Yes. Most days. <laughs> like you, you just worked 150% of a day. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to switch pace now. What is something that you've recently been fascinated by? And I think, you know, bonus points if this is if there's an idea, a book, a person, you know, kind of a quote or a talk you've been thinking about. What has been on your mind and what you can't what can't you get out of your mind lately?
1: I can't get out of my mind how profoundly I think people are underestimating the energy transition that is underway. I think that the cost curves in solar and wind show no signs of really slowing down. There's obviously a raw materials inflation happening right now due to the global supply chains and war that are interrupting that cost curve for a year or two, but the fundamentals of the cost curve don't look like they're going to change for any reasonable period of time. And if that is true, then the power of wind and solar and other forms of renewable energy are being grossly underestimated. In terms of what they're going to do to the input of everything energy goes into over the next few years. I think one consequence of that is that we are going to blow well past 100% of current electricity demand that will end up being supplied by wind and solar. I think that we're going to end up putting new sources of demand and load to accomplish new goals that have never been possible before or have not been possible through electricity. I think there's going to be a huge amount of software companies that are going to be enabled by that. I get relatively little deal flow on that area and so I'm trying to drum up you know more founders and entrepreneurs to come pitch me on this kind of stuff because I'm really interested. And so far I've I've seen, you know, a few like carbon accounting type of, you know, ESG reporting companies and I've seen some battery management companies but nothing that really gets my attention in a big way and I think things are are really really moving in a way that is still consistently underestimated for example I'll give you one one example of what I think is going to happen I think we're going to end up running fossil fuel plants in reverse basically and instead of burning fossil fuels to generate workable energy in the form of electricity we are going to use electricity to strip carbon out of the air, to make uh, liquid fuels that are not fossil fuel and that don't have carbon in them. And there was no way the physics and the economics worked for that up until very recently with particular solar power getting as cheap as it is and that cost curve continuing to go. And now there's a bunch of companies that are pursuing low capex, high opex unit economic strategies that enable them to ride that cost curve down in a way that nobody had really conceived of before. This is going to change the world. It is going to be so big it's hard to imagine all of the facets of it.
0: Just cause you kind of brought that up, how do you think about, you know, solar and wind alongside nuclear fission, are you spending any time kind of in those areas as well? Well, there's no question
1: that there's a lot of advancements in nuclear happening right now. Small modular reactors, molten salt reactors uh, of all kinds, are uh, there's multiple startups doing that. There's multiple nuclear fusion startups out there, and there do appear to be substantial breakthroughs thanks to new advances in magnetic materials that can contain fusion plasma in a way never possible before so it does appear that you know we might be close to first electrons for some systems like that sometime soon the question is are they going to ride a cost curve in general the technologies that ride cost curves are characterized by high capex high r&d low labor intensity so it doesn't take a lot of people to make a, a piece of equipment and really high volumes individual individual production units and nuclear has never yet had those characteristics to it it's labor intensive to build a nuclear plant Um, there aren't a lot of them so there isn't a huge amount of learning by doing and it's not like there are there have been multiple generations that have actually been built now there's you know four or five or six advanced nuclear generation technologies on the drawing board that have been conceived, but they haven't really been built in the world. And that's the difference. That's what causes a cost curve is building high volumes of things with low labor and multiple generations of it. There are very few things that actually get on a cost curve. You know, automobiles do not go on a cost curve. They don't, you know, automobiles don't cost a hundred bucks today. The reason they don't is that while there's a lot of CapEx and R&D involved in them, there's also a lot of labor,
0: yeah, I think that's very well said. I've never heard someone articulate it that way, but I think it's definitely the most the interest the most interesting bullish take I've heard on solar and wind as compared to something like nuclear and fission. So I think that's fascinating. I want to ask one question which is if you could go back in time and, you know, give yourself a piece of advice when you were launching Stage Venture Partners back in the early days, which I think was 7 plus years ago. What piece of advice would you give yourself?
1: If I could go back, I would say that trying to spend time convincing institutional investors to invest in a firm with no track record was a lot of wasted time and that there are a lot of other types of investors out there from just the LP capital raising perspective that are more efficient to go after and more efficient to close and nothing substitutes for momentum in business. And uh, I probably spent too much time chasing things that did not build momentum instead of finding things that created momentum.
0: Yeah, it's very well said. Just cuz we're talking about fundraising, is what's what are what is the biggest lesson you've learned in terms of fundraising from LPs or just fundraising in, in general as a as a venture firm?
1: No one in the world has an urgent problem that will get solved by investing in some random guy's venture capital fund
0: has to be much more intentional process centric
1: investing in in a vc fund is a purely discretionary thing you've got to have a lot of other things in your finances as an organization or as a person sorted out and well put together before you could even conceive of or consider the idea of putting money into a venture fund and that makes our asset class one of the most interesting challenges raise money for now on the flip side of it what we have that no one else does is the stuff we're doing is by definition super interesting super fun and just has a has characteristics of it that are a lot more engaging than you know some muni bond fund or some insurance product of some kind
0: yeah It's definitely true in my experience. It's much more fun to follow investor updates from a venture fund (laughs) and to get insight into the companies and what they're building and what they're doing.
1: As opposed to an annuity.
0: Yes. Yeah. No one wants, no one wants any updates around municipal bonds or annuities. I think that's, I think that's pretty clear. Okay. Two last closing questions. Number one, you know, is there a daily habit or routine that you do? And this could be something you've experimented with. This could be something that you're trying to nail down in your life. Now, this could be something that you've executed flawlessly and you do it every single day and you're on a hot streak. Is there a daily habit or routine that has had the biggest positive impact on your life? And can you share that?
1: No. I'm not re- I'm not really a daily routine kind of a guy.
0: Nothing. Nah. Whether it's morning or work related. <laughs> nah I like it. Not even inbox zero.
1: <laughs> I have tried to get to inbox zero on a number of occasions and I'm pretty good at it. I mean, I think let me look at my Gmail right now. I've only got in my primary tab, I've got fifty five emails right now. So I'm pretty I'm doing pretty well.
0: Uh That's not so bad.
1: Yeah. I uh I don't know, I'm much of a productivity hack or Daily routine, kind of a guy.
0: How does that influence? You know, do you spend much time planning out your day? I'm guessing it still means you're spending time sitting down and planning things out. It just means you're not maybe overthinking and overanalyzing from the like, what habits and routines should I be getting better at now?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Any given day is super busy for me, but three weeks out, there's almost nothing on my calendar except for board meetings. So it ends up evolving in an unpredictable fashion most of the time. So today I think I have six or seven items on my calendar to do, but three weeks ago there was nothing here on, on this particular calendar day, except for our interview. Uh, and so, you know, everything that I've ended up doing today has uh, been organically developed in that time period.
0: Yeah. So it almost sounds like to maybe flip it around, a big part of the strategy is be as underscheduled as you can and then allow the emergent things to fill up your calendar as it makes sense.
1: Yeah. I don't feel underscheduled at all, but I guess I am, you know, at T plus 21 days.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, I try to do the same thing as well too, partly just for, for sanity.
1: Yeah. In our business, it's somewhat required because the timelines to complete deals are so short that you don't have the luxury of letting a process go on too long. Uh, You know, yesterday I wrote, I signed a term sheet with a company and I have spent two weeks on that due diligence process. I have spoken to both founders. I have spoken to numerous people in those functions at my portfolio companies. I uh, spoke to the company's beta customer and design partner and you know completed a pretty thorough process and developed the conviction that there's something really big and really exciting here but if i had been over scheduled for the last two weeks i would not have had the flexibility to drop everything and to prioritize this particular investment opportunity and i would not be the lead investor of that company which i now am
0: yeah that's really well said okay last question what is your definition of success today, and how has that changed over time?
1: For my business? For me personally? for
0: it, either, any, any direction, angle you want to take it in?
1: I would say today for my business, my definition of success is to always be investing in the most cutting-edge software companies I can. I would say in the long run, my definition of success is to build a firm that is not entirely dependent on me and that uh, you know will one day be something that outlives me. Up in the Bay Area, there are dozens, if not a 100 or 200 venture capital firms that are on their third or fourth generation of managing partners. There are a lot of firms that were founded in the 70s or 80s, where the folks who founded them are long since retired. And most people who receive capital from those firms don't even know the names of the people who founded it. And in Los Angeles, while there's several hundred venture firms, there's only really one firm that's passed its first generation of managing partners. And everybody else is still figuring it out. And some people don't want to do that. Some people do. But most of the firms in my neck of the woods are run by the people who started them. And for an ecosystem to grow up, I think that there needs to be some degree of continuity and some degree of firms that outlast individuals and outlast people. And in the long run, I would like to be a part of that.
0: Yeah. I think that's really well said. And I especially, you know, would, uh, would like to see that because of the focus of your firm, because I, I, you know, I think number one, I I would agree that we need more kind of multi-generational or just very long term oriented firms. But the second one is we need firms that are focused on very hard, difficult technological problems. And so I think if you can do both of those with stage venture partners, I think that would be an incredible, incredible feat to pull off.
1: It is fun to pull science fiction into science fact.
0: and you're doing that across many of your portfolio companies. For anyone listening that's interested, you can learn more about Stage Venture Partners at stagevp.com, and you can follow Alex Rubalcava on Twitter at Alex Rubalcava, R-U-B-A-L-C-A-V-A. Thank you so much for the time, Alex. It's been awesome to have you back on. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to everything we discussed as well as the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 101. That's episode 101. For more from Alex, listen to episode 98, where he joins me on our Investor Spotlight series to go deep on stage venture partners' approach to investing in deep technology companies at the earliest stages, including why he focuses on space, life sciences, e-commerce, and industrial applications, and why in a world of ever-increasing private market valuations, his entry point of 7500000 million hasn't moved in almost a decade. Alex is the master at investing in the most lucrative places where others aren't even looking. You can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Levels, Superhuman, Eight Sleep, Rally, and Common Stock, as well as best-selling authors and the world's smartest investors, all at outlieracademy.com. You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews, as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.